0: I get the curious task of explaining to you when Jesus is going to come back again, which I could sum it up, this could be a three-word sermon, which is I don't know, <laughs> but uh, just as it has taken Jesus quite a bit longer to come back than the disciples thought, so this sermon is going to be quite a bit longer than three words, so... Um, Anyways, we're doing this because we are taking this Advent season to reflect on Christ's second coming. Um, and this is one of the ways that we, uh, the, what this season is made for is to meditate on how Jesus came the first time. Um, but not only that, uh, that, uh, that is a down payment on another coming that is going to happen that is certain in the future when Christ is going to come back. Um, so we, as we reflect on Christ's coming um, um, at Christmas... We're looking ahead to his second coming, and um, over these weeks, uh, we're just picking out different aspects of his second coming to help us look forward to it and meditate on it. Um, And this morning, we are going to look at Matthew 24, 36 through 44, um, and we are going to look at, uh, in particular, the timing of his second coming. So uh, let's go before the Lord and read his word, and then I'll pray for us before we jump in. This is Matthew 24, 36 through 44. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready." For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Dear Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Uh, Would you work in us in your spirit? Would you humble all of us? Um, But in that place of humility, would you give us um, or rekindle in us a true and genuine excitement? Um, about what you are bringing to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I've got a spot in my house um, that I really love in the morning. I've got my own chair um, that I like to sit in, and um, especially in this weather, I'll light a fire and get up early and read, and that's one of the few quiet moments of the day that I have to sit and reflect. Um, And every once in a while, something kind of magical happens that I will think It is time to get ready, and I'll look at the clock, and I've got, like, 15 minutes left. Um, It doesn't happen very often, um, but when it does, it it gives me a choice. And, like, I've got freedom to do what I want to do. I can choose to read. I can uh, uh, maybe scroll on my phone for a while or, you know, something like that that inevitably will happen. Uh, More often than not, it's the opposite. I'll be lost in a book and I'll look at the clock and I'll be like, oh my goodness, it is way too late. I've got to really get a move on and I've got to get ready uh, for the day. Um, But this is one of the just basic realities of all of our lives, which I think we need to acknowledge when we approach this passage, is that time is just one of those fundamental realities that we use to get ready and to prepare for what it is that we need to do. Um, our whole world is structured around it. Our days are structured around it. Our work life is structured around it. You know, as we think about ret- retirement and things, we're going to be ready. We're thinking about a time that's ahead and using the time now wisely. Uh, we've got our kids in all of the sports camps to you know because they their athletic peak is going to come at a certain time, and we've got to make sure we've got enough you know training in there that they're going to peak their full potential at the right time. Like our lives are just pushed forward by this sense of time is passing, things we've got to do, um, and um, something, things that are looming on the horizon. And I just say that to, as, because it's so normal and there's nothing wrong with that. And yet, when we come to a passage like this, uh, we want to know when Jesus is going to come back uh, so we can be ready. That's just how life works. We've got to know when something is going to happen um, in order to get ready. And when we don't know when something is going to happen, then things tend to go a little bit awry um, inside. It makes some of us anxious. Uh, We want to flip into overdrive uh, to make sure we're ready. Some of us will just say, well, if I don't know, then who cares? If they didn't make it a priority to tell me when I had to be somewhere, well, then I just won't make it a priority to be there at that time. Uh, We all might respond to that situation in different ways. Um, But what Jesus is doing is he's speaking to us um, kind of into this this mindset which we see that the disciples shared. They really wanted to know. Uh, This originated from their question. They asked Jesus when he was going to return. And his answer is curious and kind of infuriating if you're a time conscious kind of person because he won't tell us. He said, don't be, I'm, I, you don't know when it's going to come just be ready all the time. Um, so it kind of uh, puts us into a, a very interesting spot. But I think this is, this is very useful for us. It is a gift that Jesus tells us this in many, um, in many ways. Um, and what is, I think what he is trying to do is he is trying to cause us to look and to reflect on our lives in every part and in every time and bring us to um, clarity and focus. Um, so what I want to do is, is it, I'm just going to spend a few comments to talk about the time, uh, when he's going to come, which is going to be very short. But as we saw when I read the passage, that what he's trying to get us to think about is actually not when he's going to come back, but what should we be doing all the time? It's the question of how to be ready, so the lion's share of this, we're going to spend on that question um, of how, but I did think it might be productive just to, to answer a few points, just to make mention of a few points. Um, he literally says, nobody knows the day nor the hour when he is going to come back. The angels don't know in heaven, not even the sun knows. How about that? Isn't that a weird thing to think about? Um, And it's one of those things that we don't fully understand. I don't fully understand it. um, But as many theologians have said that, you know, Jesus, the incarnated Son of God, both fully man and fully human, at many times put aside willingly some of the aspects of his divinity um, as he inhabited a human body. Like even when he walked on a road, then he was choosing to occupy one space and not all the spaces at the same time. And in a really weird way, and I don't know, does he know now, like now that he's in heaven or not? I don't really know the answer to that. But I do think what it says is that when we approach this and any amount of anxiety or curiosity that we have, that we have Jesus who went ahead of us in not knowing, and he is the one who is with us and he walks with us um, in this state of not knowing exactly what, when he's going to come. I think, you know, one of the questions I have is why? Like, why would he not just tell us when he's going to come back? Like, that would help us um, to get ready, I think, in time. And again, we're not given the answer to that question, and I don't know exactly why. I do, perhaps, it's a way that it keeps us focused all the time, and so we don't just delay until the end, so we get ready at the last minute. It doesn't say that, but maybe, theoretically. It could be also that it's a burden too great for us to bear. Like when we really think about it, do you feel like you have uh, what it takes to call time out on your neighbors and the rest of the world? That it it's time for Him to come now uh, when we know that there are many uh, who are not ready? I don't know. I don't, when you think about it, I don't really want to be the one who makes that decision. Um, but in a way, God holds it in His own hands. Um, But we, again, we have to move forward in trusting what he says, that why is not one of the questions that we are given. But the main question, again, is how. That as he unpacks this, um, he really presses in on this issue where he's saying you don't know, and what that means for you is that you need to be ready. So what does it mean to be ready? How do we do that all the time? And what I'm going to do is, um, in drawing from this text and then a little bit from the context around it, I'm going, to, I'm going to give us three different traps or three different burdens that tend to weigh on our, way, our readiness or get in the way, along with their antidote. And what they're going to be is, first, instead of fear, we're called to humility. Instead of indifference, we're called to repentance. And instead of escapism, we're called to works of grace. And mercy. So we're going to start here with fear and I do want to ask you how many of you when we first read this passage and he says I'm not going to tell you when he's coming to be ready all the time your first gut response was towards anxiety. I don't like that makes me very uncomfortable. I'm kind of worried about the prospect of him coming um, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. Because I think when we look at our own lives, the prospect of us being ready might be a little bit confusing. Especially when we see the presence of indwelling sin. I mean, and there are just there are temptations all around us. Our social relations can be difficult. And we're left in this position that what it, I might be fine one moment and I might feel ready. But then I have an argument with my spouse and I might prefer he would delay a little while so we could work this out. I might be struggling with an addiction. And I just, that's a very complicated feeling. Do I want Jesus to come back now or do I want my life to be more uh, put together uh, before he comes? And I'll give you an illustration. Um, some of you know I lived in uh, Budapest, Hungary for a little while. And there's a way they do education, which is just terrifying, That they don't tell you when any of the exams are going to be. They will randomly call out two people in any class to stand up in front of the whole class and give your exam. And so you have to study all the time. And because it is not only your grade at stake, but it is shame that's at stake in front of your classmates. And I imagine there's some of us in here that this is the kind of feeling we get when we think about the uncertainty when Jesus is going to come. It means that we have to work so hard to make sure that we feel ready. And what's at stake is a deep, deep shame. As that what is he going to find when he actually comes. And and I want to spend some time on this, even though this is in some ways a little bit tangent to this passage, but it, is re- it really is written all over. Anytime, just remember who is the one who is coming. Anytime we are talking about Jesus being the one who is coming back, our Lord, the one who is coming for us, that this is our Savior who is not coming for us so that we, according to how ready we have gotten ourselves, but He is coming to us because we cannot get ourselves ready on our own. And you find this, that the disciples actually are asking this because they associate Jesus as coming as a good thing. They've got to know Jesus and they say, this is, this is great. He's going to come and deliver us from all kinds of things. But even they here, they have no idea what Jesus is about to do very, very shortly. Where Jesus on the cross, the full vent of God's wrath and judgment was not poured out onto his people, but was poured onto Jesus himself. The full brunt, not a bit left. And then he didn't stay there, he didn't stay in the grave, but he rose again, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. So that you would be wrapped up, not in your own sin. But you would be wrapped up in the very righteousness of the one who is coming for you. And so when Jesus comes back, what he's coming back for is a deliverance. It's a deliverance from our shame. That that is the only place we have to unload it. And so when we look at it that way, when we just remember even the the very basic level of of what the gospel is. That whether we have gotten ourselves ready or not makes no difference it has everything to do with when He comes, whether our life will be wrapped up in Him and not in me. Which is why humility is the antidote to fear. It is not us like garnering some kind of faith and stopping us from being afraid. It is actually to see less of our own lives and more of the one who is coming to us. Sometimes when we are afraid is because we are actually, the problem is with our pride. We are putting a whole lot of stock into our own performance and how much we are not ready when the one who is coming is the one who has provided righteousness for us. So one, it's worth considering to us, but when we respond to this in anxiety, it's worth asking the question that is one of the burdens that we is weighing on us uh, in our sense of unreadiness Because we have lost sight of the salvation that Jesus is actually coming with. And that embracing the posture of weakness is actually the very place we are going to see the greatness of the Savior that has come for us. (coughs) So humility is the antidote uh, for fear. Um, That's one way. But of course that brings up the other question. Well then does it really matter what we do uh, um, in the first place? Um, if you know, does that mean that we can just check off that box of the second coming, um, and then we can go about the rest of our lives and whatever else we wanted to do, and just not worry about it anymore? Well, come back to our passage and let's look again. I want to you know come back to see where it talks about the days of Noah. Um, he's making a comparison: as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, what were they doing? They were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. So like the fundamental, it's interesting we think about it because when, if you know the story of Noah, we know that um, in Genesis that there was rampant um, violence and sin of all kinds um, that was going on at that time. But that's not really referenced here. The thing that's referenced here really is their indifference to what could and might happen. It's that they are so consumed in their, their own priorities and the ways that they, you know, the things that are, are weighing on their lives, the things that feel important and those kinds of things, that they are just completely unaware of what God's priorities are and of how God might feel about it um, and what the, what the agenda of God is and what He is working in the world. And I think that is a trap for us is the trap of indif- indifference. Is that we can, one of the worst things we can do is actually say, this is out of sight, out of mind. And so whatever my life looks like, it doesn't matter um, at all. And I think it's worth sitting in, um, it's a little bit uncomfortable to think about, but the whole context of this is that Jesus is actually warning that one of the aspects of what he's coming for is he's coming in judgment. And, of course, if we look at that outside of his deliverance and his salvation, then, boy, what a frightening prospect that would be. But even when we recognize that, then what is showing us is that um, a life of priorities that run contrary to what God is up to is not a good thing. On just a fundamental level, Jesus is coming to take away all of the things in life um, that are evil and that are wrong. And that when he comes back, he is actually going to cleanse the new heavens and new earth um, of any trace of sin um, that there is. And I had a, um, a somebody uh, that I look up to a lot say one time that there's something that we just have to rec- wrestle with, is that we cannot just take sin in our lives um, and get used to it and get comfortable with it and think there will be no consequences to this action. That these are things that God is coming um, to do away with um, at the end of the day. But so what's the antidote to that? What's the antidote to that kind of um, indifference? And I would, I would propose that the antidote to that is repentance. And because what repentance is, is a turning of priorities on a day-by-day basis. This is what Luther calls the essence of the Christian life, is a whole life of Repentance. It is of acknowledging these things that are wrong and turning towards Jesus um, and the things that are right. And this is really what this passage is just really the way wants to get a hold of us to take notice, to reflect upon our lives. Um, that we would see those things that are dark. We would see the pride. We would see um, the sin that is there, that is there in um, and that uh, dwells inside of us. And that, that we would turn and we would turn to Him in repentance. And I would propose to you this, which is a counterintuitive way of thinking, that repentance is actually a gift that is given to His people. Because it is the people with the Spirit is not at work in their lives where there is no even recognition that sin exists in the first place. What sin is, is it is deceitful. It tricks us into thinking that this is actually good for us. That this actually might be cozy to hang on to until Jesus comes um, to take it away. Um, And that's not that runs contrary to what God is about. When He shows us our sin, it is actually because He is alive and at work inside of us. It is a movement of mercy, of how He is rearranging our priorities inside of our hearts to match up to what the life is going to look like that is to come. And when we see it that way, repentance is actually a joy. It is a sign of God's good graces, that it is his delight in us that he would work in us maturity and he would give us aspects of himself to us so that our lives look more like him. Repentance is kind of like that activity that we do every day that leads us to humility where our lives are not characterized by holding on to our self-righteousness but from the position of weakness that causes our eyes to look up and long for the salvation that comes in Jesus, repentance is that thing that we do every day um, that that focuses our eyes in that direction and I do think it 's worth asking that question as well, just to look to look into our lives um, to, to, uh, How often do we actually examine and look and see that is there sin in my life? Put it in context of a normal relationship. How often with your spouse, when you 're having an argument, do you not? Um, Revert to just explaining why you were doing what you were doing but actually acknowledging that I responded wrongly and in pride to you and I'm sorry I'm not saying that context doesn't matter context matters a lot but when we do that when we do that then the salvation of Jesus is magnified then his grace is magnified in our lives. And the things that he shows us, we get to look at and see that has no power over me anymore. And we see it as a process of our Savior calling us further up and further in to enjoy his love and to revel in his grace. So what again, another trap, indifference. And the antidote to that is repentance. It is a lifestyle, a habit. Of repentance that actually draws us towards Christ's second coming, and there's a last one here, and I do think this is one was one of the more interesting insights uh, that I didn't expect after looking um, at this passage. Um, that have you ever heard the phrase that um, that person is so heavenly minded they're no earthly good? Um, As a great phrase. Um, and it, 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 it kind of speaks to a third trap that we can fall into when we get that. Like, we, i got the humility part. I've got the justification part. I've got the repentance part. I understand, you know. But then there's this other big glaring question that what do I do then every day? I don't just negatively repent of all of my sin. Like, what am I called to do? And we might come to the conclusion like, well, if I really value the second coming, I might... Put a chair by my window and look at the sky and try not to get entangled with civilian affairs um, in any way. And that's actually the opposite of what Jesus is going to call for. And what I would encourage you to do is to read the re- um, read the rest of chapter 24 and into chapter 25. Because what Jesus is going to do is tell a series of parables that is going to explain what it means to be ready. And here are several things. The one right after this he tells a parable of a faithful servant and a wicked servant. Um, And what the faithful servant does is he takes care of his master's house and he feeds the servants of the house when it's time. The unfaithful servant exploits the household. When he senses that Christ delays he starts beating the servants and, um, and basically embracing a party lifestyle in his master's house. Um, so there's like, there is a, a breakdown in social relationships and basic stewardship of the everyday life. Uh, there's a parable of the talents, which you remember, uh, might remember, where Jesus gave um, a series of people a sum of money. Or uh, a master went away and gave um, a series of people a sum of money. And the faithful ones are the ones that invested it. And the unfaithful one was the one who out of fear buried his money and didn't make any investment on it. And what's that calling for? It's just, there's an engagement in life, in the kingdom of God coming here to earth. And in the last one in chapter 25 is the parable of the sheep and the goats. Where when Jesus divides at the end of the day, what are the things he points to? He says, did you clothe the naked? Did you feed the hungry? Did you have mercy on those that I put right in front of you? And this is the whole shape of this whole story. It is not of us escaping from life. It is about Christ's return and heaven coming back down to earth and redeeming it in every corner. And we actually see this in this passage. You get this, uh, you know, these weird phrases of one taken and one that was left. Um, It can be confusing if we read it out of context, but if we read it in context... Uh, What happened in the story of Noah? That the one who stayed was actually Noah. He was the one who was put in in Christ's ark, uh, in uh, the ark that God called him to build, which in the New Testament becomes a symbol for Christ. And the ones that were taken away were the ones taken away in judgment. This is a very earth-forward perspective. And this is affirmed again and again and again in many, many other places in Scripture that our hope is that God will come back down to earth and He will make everything right once again. So what does that mean practically for just our activity um, of our everyday lives? If we believe that Jesus is actually going to come back, that means, and if His Spirit is dwelling among us, if He is even right now making us into new creations, then we have the opportunity right now to start investing in the new heavens that are going to come down to earth with certainty one day. That we are called to extend mercy to those who need it because when Christ comes again he is coming to bring mercy to those who need it. We give the hungry food because when Christ comes he's coming with an abundance where there will be no hunger anymore. We are called to reconcile with each other Because in the new heavens and new earth, that person is my sister. That is my brother. That Christ is in the business of reconciling right now. It is a calling for us even now as imperfectly and as fraught with difficulty and traps and all of that as it is. To actually start now to learn and to practice living in heaven, come back down to earth. We're putting a deposit, an investment on that which is to come in every opportunity that Christ, that God has. And so rather than that being just a burden put on us, it is an opportunity of love that we have been extended by Jesus. This is the way he operated in the world, and this is the way that he calls us to follow him um, um, in getting ready for that which is to come. So the antidote to uh, escapism is works of mercy. It is a heart that enjoys God's grace, that sits in it, that treasures it, and it is delight to share it with those around us. And I want to end, so basically what we've done is we, we dismissed the when question um, right out the gate, and we spent a lot of time talking about the how question. How do we get ready? But I think the money really is at the end, uh, which is the why question. You know, the, mo- the certain thing of this whole passage It's not the timing. It's that Jesus is coming back. That is without a doubt. He will come back at a time that we don't expect. And this is why we are talking about this in Advent here this season. Because my wife put it really well this morning. We are not the first group of the people of God that have ever had to wait. And who had no idea how long it was going to take before He came. God's people in Egypt were enslaved for 400 years. Generations lived, generations died. It took a long time. And His deliverance came, and that became a sentinel moment in the character of the people of God. Before Christ was born, there had been 400 years of silence, like not a word from anybody. And then almost invisibly to many, Jesus came lowly of humble estate, born into a, ma- a manger. He did come. And He will come again just as actually and just as physically as He came the last time. And so what we, this is, you know, we are, we are thinking about these things in order to anticipate the future ...then we are looking on to the past. We are celebrating. We've got our whole space here decorated... ...and we've got this warm and cozy glow... ...and I just love this season. This is a very tangible reminder that our Savior did come... ...and He will come again. So therefore, what's left for us... ...but then to lay aside... ...every weight, every trap... ...every sin that so easily entangles... ...and knowing that there is a whole host of heaven... ...of those that have gone before us... ...who have walked this same journey who have suffered many, many things, who can see more clearly what is to come, that they are even now invisibly, they are watching. They are watching you and cheering for that moment when Jesus finally returns. I'm going to stop there and let's pray um, that the Spirit would gird us up and He would give us hope and He would um, help us as we wait. Jesus, I pray that you would do just that please nourish your saints, help us in our loneliness, Um, help us in our our suffering, help us with our sin, that you might turn, we might uh, hope anew in your second coming, and that that might characterize every aspect of our lives every day. In Jesus' name, amen.